If you haven't already, definitely turn to the book of Nahum. It's one of the 12 minor prophets, one that we don't talk about often, but one that will be extremely helpful to us. I do believe that this morning. But I want to bring your attention to this text that I found extremely comforting. And many other believers would say the exact same thing. They've gone to this text in times of need, when they're in difficulties, problems, deaths in the family. Uh, Savannah's grandmother, uh, my wife's grandmother, before she passed away, um, she was a dear Christian lady. Um, she asked her pastor to preach this text at her funeral. And the pastor did honor that promise. And it was one of the best funeral sermons I had ever heard. Extremely encouraging time knowing that this dear Christian lady was now with God in heaven and that here on earth as we're left behind in the meantime we have lots of encouragement because we serve a good God full of goodness now it would be an understatement to say that several of us in this church are going through significant problems and that's thinking about those things this week is actually what turned my mind to this text um, you know what the problems are there are serious things going on and I do believe this can be an encouragement. Now, saying all that, it might sound strange for me to say that I want to turn your attention back to theology this morning. And that might sound crazy, but let's, let's think about that for a second. What is theology? I had someone recently tell me, I don't believe in theology. And it kind of caught me off guard at first. I thought, okay, I never really say it, put it quite that way, but... The more I thought about it, we had completely different definitions of what theology actually is. Now, there are, and what he had in his mind, there are some people who treat God as if he's merely a specimen of academic study or scientific study. There are people who treat God like that and just want to get academic information out of the things. But that's not what real theology is, is it? That's not what biblical theology is. Real theology is, is learning. And it is meditating on who God actually is and what he's done, who God is and what he's done, his character and his works. And as we all know, and as we should know, this is not an end in itself, just the learning. It is for the purpose of worshiping him and having a vital relationship with him, isn't it? That's the purpose of all this. So now we ask the next question. Is there such a thing as too much theology in a church? Is there such a thing as too much theology in a church? Obviously, you probably know where I'm going now. And I think we can answer that by asking another question. Can you have a house that's too well built? Can you have a, a foundation that's too well laid? You can't. That's impossible, isn't it? Now, someone might come and say to that, well, sure, you can have a house that's, that's not too well built. It, it can never be too well built, can never be too well laid, never be too strong. But there are some houses that are cold and uninviting, where people aren't welcome. That's true, too, isn't it? And that can be true with our theology. So we want a house that's well-built and a house that's welcoming. We want to know God's truth, and we want that to do something to our hearts, too, don't we? And that's what we're going to try to do this morning. So we lose our joy, we lose our hope, we despair, we wander through life without answers, not when we have too much theology. But when we leave it out of the picture, or when we forget its ultimate purpose. And that's where I want to direct you this morning. My, go my goal this morning is to apply theology to our problems. Have a practical theology that comes from the truth of Scripture. And as we go, I'm going to define what I mean by problems. So my, the main truth I want you to get this morning is that a life lived under God's goodness is not a life without significant problems. But it is a life of hope, and that's what we're going to see in this text. And I believe you will be encouraged with the Holy Spirit's help. And I want to do that by looking at three attributes of God in the context of Nahum 1.7. Look at the goodness of God, look at the protection of God, and then the knowledge of God. Three attributes of God that stand out in the context of Nahum 1.7. We'll look down at the verse again, our key verse this morning, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Let's have another word of prayer. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is inspired by you. It's given to us by you, and you've given it to us without error, without problems, without corruption, Lord. You've given it to us. It's holy, and we can read it, and we can meet the living Christ on its pages. And I pray we do that this morning. And, Lord, I pray for those who do know you. I pray, Lord, that they derive great comfort and encouragement from this text and people who do not know you, people who are not in Christ. I pray, Lord, that you convict them of their sin and show them that you are their only hope for this life and the next. We do expect that you can honor your word. We expect that you will honor your word. And we love you very much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's look first at the goodness of God. First attribute, the goodness of God. The first part of verse 7 says, The Lord Yahweh, the personal God of Israel, the one true God, is good. Yahweh is good. Now, how do you define the word good? Do you ever run to the dictionary when you read the word good in a book? Say, what does that word mean? That's one thing we've probably never looked up. It's almost impossible to define, isn't it? You think of the good things in your life. Maybe good food. Maybe you say good clothes, a good movie, a good family. What makes them good? What is it about it that makes something good? So when we say God is good, I want us to not just stop there and move on to the next point, but I want to think about what makes God good. Think more deeply about God's goodness. So let's think about this together. Let's look at the nature of God's goodness. Thomas Manson, an old Puritan from the 1600s, he put it this way. He said, he is originally good. That means he's good of himself, which nothing else is. For all creatures, all, all of the creation, us included, are good only by participation and communication from God. He's also essentially good. Not only good, having the quality, but he's goodness itself. The creature's good is a super added quality, something added to us. In God, it is his essence. It's who he is. And he's infinitely good. The creature's good. Us as people are, as the creation, our good is but a drop. But in God, there is an infinite ocean or gathering together of good. He's also eternally and immutably or unchangeably good. For he cannot be less good than he is, as there can be no addition made to him, so no subtraction from him. And that's a powerful statement, thinking more deeply about God's goodness. Not completely uh, impossible to understand, very simple to understand, but stopping on this point is crucial for us to do and not skipping what it means for God to be good. So he's the source of all goodness. We see that in the very first page of our Bible, don't we? God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was what? Very good. So it was very good. But how long did that last? didn't last too long. didn't tell us exactly, but Adam and Eve, they sinned. They were tempted by, this, by Satan, and they ate from the tree that God told them not to eat. And ever since then, we have to face the reality that in Adam, all die. All of us is born, are born into sin. Are we born with an equal capacity for good or evil? That's what Disney would teach you, but that's not what the scriptures say. We're not born with an equal capacity to do some things good if we have the right influences or do the things bad if we get the wrong friends. We are born with a sin nature, dead in our trespasses and sins, completely and totally dead spiritually. So we come into this world without a shred of goodness, not having even a little bit of goodness inside of us. Everything good that happens in this world comes from somewhere, someone outside of human nature. Every act of justice, every act of kindness, every good deed, every quality relationship we have, none of those things originate with us. Not a single one of them. They come from somewhere else. They are, they're all the result either of God's common grace that he does show to everyone, and especially his sovereign grace that he shows and works in his special chosen people, the saints who are in Christ. That's where good comes from. It doesn't come from us. We do good deeds, we do good things, and none of it is from the inside, but it is all from God himself, because he is goodness himself. And he is intrinsically good, which means he is good with or without our acknowledging him as such. We could live our whole lives and not recognize his goodness, but does that make him any less good? He is still good, infinitely intrinsically of himself and he's infinitely good 
God's goodness, it defies all of our categories of measurement. We can't measure it at all. And it's never going to run out either. His goodness is not going to stop one day. It's going to keep on going and going. And it always has been. Which brings us to his goodness being eternal. He is eternally good. His goodness never had a beginning. It has no end. And it's never going to change. God is always good. And he's perfectly good. And we keep going on and on and on. But he's perfectly good. Everything he does is fair. Everything he does is right. Everything he does is just. There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. So that's thinking, scratching the surface on thinking more deeply about God's goodness. Here's another way to think about it. What about thinking about living a life without God's goodness? Think about living a life without God's goodness operating in your life. I want you to think about the possibility of not being the object of his goodness, just for a moment. We'll ask this question. Is there one attribute of God greater than another? Does he have one attribute that's greater than all the others? Don't answer out loud because it's a trick question. I would say no. But when you talk to most people on the street or most people, your coworkers, trying to witness to them, tell them about the cross of Christ, tell them about conviction of sin, what do they say? They say, I'm good, right? God is love. Because everyone knows that verse. And is that verse in the Bible? You bet it is. It's in the Bible. But is that all that scripture has to say about who God is? The Bible tells us, yes, God is love in 1 John. But also it says, I am holy. The psalmist says, righteous are you, Lord. God says, vengeance is mine. The Nahum says at the beginning of the chapter, the Lord is avenging and wrathful. Who's claimed that promise this week? None of us. We only think of God's goodness. But all of these attributes exist perfectly in unity together with equal measure, with equal glory. All of God's attributes. One doesn't rise above the other. And that's what makes God God is he's perfect in everything he does. So with that, it is possible to not be the object of his special love. You could be the object of his wrath of his hatred, that is possible because of the way we relate to God, because of our sin. And in fact, before Christ, that is our condition. You are the object of his wrath. You are not the object of his goodness. Nineveh, looking at the background of Nahum for a moment, Nineveh was a people under God's wrath. Nahum wrote this prophecy in the mid-600s B.C., and it was during a time when Nineveh, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria, by the way. It was, they were one of the most powerful forces in the known world at the time. Nineveh serves as a very graphic illustration of what living without God's goodness looks like. Can you think of any other prophets to Nineveh? Jonah, right? Jonah prophesied to Nineveh about 100 years before Nahum. And what was Jonah's message? Repent. In other words, there's opportunity to turn from your sin and flee from the wrath of God. Did Jonah like that job? He didn't like it for a bit because he knew how wicked the Assyrians were. He knew how wicked Nineveh was. So who did Jonah wanted Nahum's job, but Jonah didn't know about Nahum at the time. But what was Nahum's message? Justice. No time to repent. No opportunity for repentance even. You guys are going to be judged. It's going to happen. This is a promise from the mouth of God. That was Nahum's job, to report that to Nineveh. And there was going to be no hope of deliverance. But why? How, how, how could God do that and still be just? Well, they lived lives of idolatry. Look, look down at the text of chapter 1, verse 14. We're going to jump around just for a moment with the Nahum's three chapters. Nahum 1, 14. The Lord has issued a command concerning you. Your name will no longer be perpetuated. You're no longer going to be a city. No one's going to say, oh, yeah, let's go over to Nineveh, because they're going to be gone. I will cut off idol and image. And here's what's at the root. They are no longer worshiping God. Repentance is no, thing, is no longer anything they desire. They want to worship false gods, not the one true God. God's going to cut off their idols and their images. He's going to, from the house of your gods, I will prepare your grave. Because you are contemptible, you are guilty. 
They lived lives of idolatry, exchanging the one true God for their idols. They were cruel, bloodthirsty people. Nahum 3.1. Look at that verse. It says, Woe to the bloody city, full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. They were a vicious people. Extremely vicious, extremely violent. They would cut off people's hands. They cut off people's ears. They cut off their feet, their noses. They gouge out their eyes. This is what they would do to their enemies. And they'd pile up all the bodies at the, at the front of the gate so everyone could see what they've done. And that's the best thing they did. It gets worse and worse. And I'm not going to actually read what I have written down here of things that they did to people. This was Nineveh. So what was God's stance toward Nineveh? Look at chapter 2, verse 13. And put yourself in their shoes for a moment. 2.13. God says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. Putting yourself in Nineveh's shoes, God telling you, I'm against you. And you know you have no hope of deliverance. What did God promise to them? Look at the rest of verse 13. I will burn up her chariots in smoke. A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land. And no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. Look at chapter 3, verses 5 and 7. God tells Nineveh, again, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. And I will lift up your skirts over your face. And I will show to the nations your nakedness. And to, this, to the kingdoms your disgrace. And this is God talking to Nineveh. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. Verse 7. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who's going to grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? This is God's promise to Nineveh. That helps us understand God's goodness, doesn't it? Thinking about what he's promising to these people. A life without God's goodness is a life without hope. However, in the middle of all this judgment, all this devastation, look back at verse 7. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. He said, right in the middle of the surging flood stands out like a green island. This most cheering, comforting, and delightful text. Right in the middle of all this devastation, this one verse stands out above the rest and it offers us hope as God's people. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. Now think for a moment, we've talked about the nature of God's goodness, we've talked about a life without God's goodness. Now think of the epitome of God's goodness. The psalmist says in, in Psalm 34, 8, he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste it. Experience it. How do we do that? That's the question. We say at this point we want God's goodness. We want it operating in our lives. How do we taste and see that the Lord is good? We do not want to be in Nineveh's shoes. How do we taste and see? Well, the New Testament carries this exact same concept over, straight over, and we can see that. We saw it in our text this morning. But it uses often the word kindness, the same exact concept, but in Greek, taking it from Hebrew to Greek, and in our English translations, kindness. What's 1 Peter 2 say? It says, as newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word so that you may grow in respect to your salvation. What's the if say? If you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. If you've tasted it. Now again, how do we taste it? How do we taste God's kindness? What does the scripture say? There's only one way to experience God's kindness and its fullness. There's only one way to have his goodness operating in your life. And what is the answer? What's the answer? It's Christ. That's why we had Mr. Steve read Titus 3 today. It says, but when the kindness, that same exact concept from Nahum 1.7, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us. Why did we need saving? Because we were sinners and his wrath was hanging over us. But again, he's perfectly equal in all of his attributes, and he does have kindness, so he did send his son. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, 
So you can't access God's kindness. You can't access God's goodness by your works, by living a good life, by coming to church, by doing the right things. You cannot get God's goodness that way. It's only according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. That's how we have God's goodness. And that's the epitome of God's kindness is the Christ coming down, dying in the place of sinners who don't deserve his kindness, sinners who don't have any goodness of themselves. And he credits the righteousness of Christ to all those who believe only in him and not believing in their works. And that's the good news of Scripture. That's the good news of the gospel. And that's what the gospel actually means, that Christ has died in our place. And we have hope, and we have hope to live under God's goodness and not under his wrath. So for those who are not in Christ this morning, here in this room, you cannot run to him for protection. You cannot run to him as a good God and stay in his stronghold if you're not in Christ. If you're not in Christ, then you're not safe in the Father's hands. You're actually as far from safety as possible. So running to Christ is running to God's goodness. So that's thinking more deeply about God's goodness thinking about his attributes and how they apply practically in our lives. So God's goodness teaches us that he can be trusted. Now the next question we're going to ask is ever a time when you can't trust his goodness? Is there ever a time when your problems get so bad and I'm looking at faces who have experienced things that are atrocious? Or is there ever a time when you can't trust his goodness? And we're, we already know the answer to the question, but let's look back at the text. Let's look back at the character of God and see the answer. The goodness of God. Now let's look at the protection of God. So not only is God infinitely good, he is infinitely powerful. He created the earth. He created everything in the earth. He made the sun. He made the moon. He made the stars. And he holds it all together. And how does he do all this? How did he create all this, and how does he hold it all together? By speaking. The word of his mouth. He is omnipotent. That's the theology word, right? He's all-powerful. He can do anything, and he's all-powerful in every way. So the, from this text, from God's character, and what it teaches us about who he is, is that there is never a time when we cannot trust in his goodness. There's never a time. And you see that from the context of Nahum already. Now, I do believe you'll all agree with me on that. There is never a time when we can't trust his goodness, but we do want to know how. How do you trust in his goodness? How do you go to him for protection? And that's the question we all want to know. I don't intend to give you the full answer to that because it's something we're going to study, think, pray about on our own, too. But one thing we need to think about up front is this idea of physical blessings because we do live in America, and that's our context, where we do have many physical blessings. God provides us with all kinds of comforts and blessings in this life, doesn't he? Everything we have that's good is from him, isn't it? I'm not saying you should go in home and sell all those things right now, but the fact is we have those blessings. We have apartments to live in. We have houses to live in. 98.9% .9 of us have AC in our cars. Um, the, majority of us have, the majority of us have relatively good health. The majority of us do. We're a younger church. But notice what the text says. Look back at verse 7. He is a stronghold, but specifically when? In the day of trouble. So this means that he is still omnipotent in our times of distress, in our problems. And in fact, that's the whole point of this passage, is that he is a stronghold when we need him the most, in our greatest time of problems. He is a stronghold. And you saw the, the, the title of the sermon, Trusting God When Our Problems Don't Seem to Go Away. Sounds like a pretty low statement. Something you've heard probably many times. What's missing from that? Don't seem to go away. What about our problems? It's not that our problems don't seem to go away. There are some problems that we'll take on in this life that will not go away. They might stay with us until we go to glory. Problems that just don't go away because we live in a cursed earth and we live in a sinful world, and these things are just going to stay with us and be a thorn in our flesh. 
Now, looking back into the background, I think you'll see something encouraging from Judah's situation. I'm not talking about Judah triplet, but talking about the southern tribe of Judah. Thinking about what was happening to them at the time, because this book was written to them about Nineveh. We've already talked about how powerful and cruel Nineveh was. Nineveh's power at the time was stretching all over the known world at the time, and it stretched all the way down, actually from your angle, stretched all the way down to the southern kingdom of Judah. And they were being oppressed. They were facing all kinds of issues, not taken captive yet, but being majorly oppressed by this cruel city. But look at what God says to Judah. Look at back at verse uh, 115, chapter 1, verse 15. God delivers good news to Judah. God tells them, Behold, on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace. Celebrate your feasts, O Judah. Pay your vows. For never again will the wicked one pass through you. And there's the promise. The promise of Nineveh's judgment was good news for Judah. They're not going to pass through you anymore. They're no longer going to oppress you. And it says he is cut off completely. And look, keep looking in chapter 2. The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strengthen your back, summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob, like the splendor of Israel. He's going to do it. He's going to restore them to splendor. Even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. Now hold that thought for a minute. What kind of security, what kind of protection are we talking about if we're saying our problems aren't going away? Some problems aren't going away. So what kind of protection are we talking about? Because we think of protection in terms of problems leaving, right? But what about when the problems stay? What kind of security are we talking about? See, we're talking about spiritual security. Spiritual security. Now, spiritual security in the here and now. As we sit here in this room and as we face difficult problems today, spiritual security, spiritual protection. The primary security that God offers us is not physical prosperity in the here and now, but spiritual security. And I'll pick on Joel Osteen for a minute because he keeps publishing books. A brand new one in my CBD catalog I read this week is about how we're going to be winners in this life. But that's not the goal. Not about being winners, but having spiritual protection, not physical prosperity. That's not the promise. Our text says that he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. Now, Nahum uses a word picture that reminds us of, or should remind us of, a mountain fortress. Something that's impenetrable, something that no enemy could overtake. He's a stronghold. And how does that apply spiritually in our hearts today? How would it have applied to Judah, who still had problems, who was still being oppressed, even as Nahum was writing, still being oppressed? How would they have had encouragement? It would have been in their hearts. Uh, Paul says the same thing in Philippians 4. You don't have to turn there, but you all know the verses. It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And what's the result of doing that? The peace of God which surpasses all comprehension. What will God's peace do? Guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It'll put a fortress around your heart. Problems will still be all around you. You'll still be oppressed by Judah. You'll still be taken captive to Babylon. You'll still have all these problems around you, but God will put a stronghold around your heart. And that is a spiritual promise. And that's the, it's not a physical promise here in Nahum just yet. And we'll see why in a moment. And it's also a spiritual promise for us, that he'll put a fortress around our hearts. It's also protection from the evil one. This is what Jesus told the disciples to pray, and deliver us from the evil one, deliver us from Satan and his schemes. This is all throughout the Old and New Testament, being delivered from the evil one, from Satan and his hatred for us. Now, it's not just spiritual. It is spiritual security now. Are things ever going to get better physically for us? Yes. When is that going to be? When Christ returns. He will set up a kingdom, and it's going to be an everlasting kingdom. And it's going to be here. He's going to create a new heavens and a new earth. So I don't know if there's going to be any gems there. I don't know if we'll need to go to the gym. Probably not. Everything's going to be restored, and it's going to be great. So he does promise us that. In the here and now, he does promise us spiritual security, but not physical prosperity. But in the future... We are looking forward to a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that is 
our ultimate focus as Christians, looking ahead to their glorious future that we will share with the tribe of Judah and the believing remnant of Judah. Now, the restoration of all things future. I've already hinted at it, but the context here is that Judah's problems were still far from over. There is a promise that God is going to eliminate Nineveh and is going to restore their splendor, but were their problems over yet? They weren't over yet. So did God keep his promise to Judah? He did, and he's going to. He did keep it, and he's going to keep the promise. So let me tell you what I mean. God promised Judah that the wicked nation of Assyria would never oppress them again. That was the specific promise in the historical context of Nahum, that Nineveh was no longer going to oppress them. They destroy them. Did he keep that promise? He kept that promise very soon after. Nineveh was annihilated. Archaeologists didn't discover the city until the 1800s. They were obliterated very shortly after Nahum's prophecy. God kept that promise, and they never oppressed Judah ever again. But was Judah's splendor fully restored after that, after Nineveh was annihilated? What happened around 40, 50 years, not sure exactly how many years, what happened later, after the 600s, to the, to the tribe of Judah? Well, there was a guy named Nebuchadnezzar, and he had some things to do. And you remember this guy named Daniel, and he had three friends, godly men, people who trusted God. Did their circumstances change? Did they get a lot better? Did they have their kingdom returned to them, their splendor restored? They were taken captive and made servants of the king in Babylon, away from their hometown. So their problems were still far from over. So the point for us is the same point for Judah. In the Christian life, we put all of our stock in the future. We put all of our stock in what God's going to do, looking to the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the promise that we have. And I need to say something about what we do in the meantime, because we all... Say, okay, amen, I agree, but what do we do now? What about this spiritual security thing? How do we make it through to Monday? And many of us are asking that question literally. How do we make it through to the next day with these problems around us that don't seem to be going away? I'm going to suggest, not just suggest, but tell us that we have to embrace our limitations. We have to embrace that we're limited. We have to embrace that we're finite. We have to embrace that we can't fix it all. We have to not just believe that, but we have to embrace that, or else we're not going to have the joy that God promises us here. Now, when I'm talking about embracing your limitations, I'm not talking about sitting around and doing nothing. I'm not talking about go ahead and do, have lazy habits and don't take care of yourself or don't exercise any wisdom. Um, you know Eeyore, right? He always had this house made of sticks, and what happened to that house? Constantly got knocked down, didn't it? And then Eeyore's like, wait, what's going on? No one really cares about me. Mope away. And what would he do? Start building the house again. I'm not talking about that kind of limitation. I'm not talking about doing the same silly choices over and over again, expecting something better to happen. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about things that we can't fix. Things that we can't just make go away. That's what I'm talking about. And all of us, whatever degree, are facing situations like that today. So I'm talking about things that we can't just sweep under the rug, things that we can't just make go away. And what are some of those things? Well, what about reaching out to someone who ne maybe needs help? Reaching out over and over and over again, and they never respond. Can you make that person respond to you? I wish I could. And you probably wish many times that you could. But you can't change someone's heart. What about the sins of your friends or the sin of your spouse? Can you change that? We can be there to comfort, we can be there to counsel, but ultimately we cannot change that. We cannot change someone's heart. What about a loved one in prison? You can't get that person out. They're in there. They've done what they've done. What can you do except pray and love them and encourage them and tell them the gospel? You can't fix that. What about someone who's on drugs, someone you love? You're sitting there with them. Their family has abandoned them. They have nothing. They've lost their job. And you give them the gospel, and you want to help them, but you can't. You cannot fix their situation. They're going to go right back into the drugs, right back into the same problems over and over again. 
You yourself cannot fix that. What about cancer? I have a cousin who's younger than I am, and her cancer is getting worse and worse. I learned about it at the beginning of this week. It's getting worse. I cannot fix that. Her brother cannot fix that. My aunt and uncle can't fix that. They have to wait. Alzheimer's hits all kinds of people we love. Can you re reverse the effects of Alzheimer's? Can you restore what they've lost? You can't. When it's gone, it's gone. We wait. You can't fix it. Divorce. Can you change your spouse's heart, the person who left you? Can you change them? You can't change them. We can't fix it. We are not omnipotent. Salvation. You've given someone the gospel. You cry for them. You plead with them. Can you change their heart? Can you turn them back? You yourself. We are not omnipotent. We cannot fix it. I have not been in full-time ministry very long, but one of the first lessons I've learned is, is this. I, I started ministry work because I really wanted to help people with their problems. That's why I went into it. And then when, once you get into ministry, what do you see? You get what you, you at least see part of it, you see all the problems. You get what you asked for, you see the problems. You see all kinds of terrible things happening on small scales and large scales. You say, okay, that's what I'm here for, I'm gonna fix it now. Uh, you're looking at me saying, you know, that's not gonna happen. But that was one of the first lessons that I had to learn, that I couldn't fix it. I can't do it. One pastor said, Everything pastor's hope will take place in a person's life with God remains outside the pastor's own power. And it's not just pastors, it's all of us. As believer priests, as we minister to each other, we wait. Sometimes it's as if God tells us, stay right where you are. I'm not going to change a single thing yet. And I want you to enjoy me. I want you to enjoy me. I want you to taste and see that I am good. I want you to enjoy the forgiveness that you have in Christ. And I want you to know that I am omnipotent and you are not. We would never say that out loud, but that's what we do when we say we can fix it. We are saying that we are the omnipotent one. We're the all-powerful one, that we can get it done, but we can't. We embrace our limitations, not just admit them, but we embrace them. And when we do that, we see God for how powerful he is. We see that he is the stronghold in the day of trouble. And it's not ourselves. We are not the stronghold. It's not in our abilities. What's the answer to all this? Again, sit back and do nothing. Stop praying. Stop reading scripture. Stop counseling people. Stop encouraging people. Stop telling the gospel. That's not the answer. The answer is faith. We've sang the song today. We walk by faith, not by sight. We stand on the promises that God has given us. And there is no easy way to start, okay, just brush yourself up and start doing it today. You only have that kind of faith in God as you meditate on who God actually is and what he has actually done. That's how you come to faith in him, by looking at him and how powerful he is, that he is our protection. So the book of Nahum essentially talks about two groups of people. Let's read verses 7 and 8 again. Let's read them back to back. Look at verses 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Verse 8. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of its sight. And he will pursue his enemies into darkness. So the two groups that Nahum brings up are those who take refuge in God and God's enemies. Two groups of people. Pretty simple. Enemies and friends. Now I know the question that many of you might have, the question that we should ask now, is how do we know that we are not a Ninevite? How do we know that we're not like the Ninevites who are under God's wrath? How do we know? How can we have any encouragement? Can we have any confidence that we are among his people? The, question is yes. the answer is yes. 
So that's, we need to look at the knowledge of God. Now, I need to explain what I mean by knowledge of God here first in this context. Now, we all have hobbies, things we like to do, right? We look like sports. Jimmy's talking about basketball. You could probably ask Jimmy any question about basketball, uh, technique, and history, and he'd probably be able to tell it to you. And that's, and that's great. It's great to have hobbies like that. Um, asking Luke Jordan anything about hunting, um, he can tell you about it. That's his hobby. He's an expert at it. He knows all the details. Um, you ask uh, James Perrone about being a firefighter. It's all fresh on his head. He just finished firefighter school. He could tell you all kinds of things about what it means to be a firefighter. But there's one thing that makes our triune God stand out above all those things. Something that makes him and our study of him completely different. He's the only object of knowledge that will never absolutely exhaust. We can never get to the bottom of God. And he will always know us better than we even know ourselves, much less him. He knows us. Anyone heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis? We're reading that with the boys right now. And you know the great lion, Aslan, who's supposed to be a picture to teach us more about who God is. Um, but someone asked Edmund, he's one of the characters in the story, someone asked Edmund, do you know Aslan? And Edmund said, well, he knows me. And whenever you're in the, in the presence of greatness, that's sometimes all you can say. It's like, I, 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 I don't really, uh, he knows me. And that's what it is between us and God. So hopefully what we all have in common in this room is that we pursue knowing God. Hopefully we're all pursuing a knowledge of God, a true knowledge of God, what he's done, who he is. Hopefully we're all pursuing that, and that's what we tried to do in the first two points already, knowing more about who God is. But what we don't often think about is what it means for God to know us, God knowing us. Now, in this context, know, it can apply two things. For God to know those who take refuge in him. It implies omniscience. What's omniscience? It's a theology word for God knowing everything. He knows all things. He knows in and out. He knows everything about everyone in his whole creation. In the whole universe, he knows everything. He knows when we sit down. He knows when we rise up. He knows our thought from afar. Even before there's a word on our tongue, behold, O Lord, he knows it all. He knows everything. He's omniscient. And he knows that about everyone in the universe. Now, second thing it implies is a caring relationship, a caring relationship. And this is particularly with his chosen people, a special relationship with his special people, not just knowing everything about details, but knowing them intimately and taking care of them. Now, the Hebrew word in this context is not an academic word in terms of acquiring knowledge. Very often, actually, all throughout the Old Testament, it refers to the intimate relationship between a husband and a wife. Abraham, or so-and-so knew so-and-so, and she conceived. That's the word. We're talking about intimate relationship. And in this particular context, it means God taking care of us, God taking care of our needs, looking after his people. And we love that truth, but how do we know that he takes care of us that way? How do we know that we're an object of his goodness? How do we know this? How can you be confident that God cares for you in this way? You say, well, I want to go to God for protection in my day of trouble. What, how do I know that he is protecting me? Now, that sounds maybe like an impossible question to answer, but I don't think the answer is very complicated. And I think we need to ask ourselves a few questions to know if God cares for us in this way. One question we can ask right away is, do we love the things that the Ninevites loved? Do we love wealth? Do we love pride? Do we love harlotry? Do we love these things? Are that, is that what's first on our mind before God? Do you have any conviction over sin? If you go against what the scripture says, you rebel against God in any particular area, does it convict you? Does it bother you? Do you have any confidence that Christ has paid for your sin? Does the finished work of Christ, does it give you any peace? Does it give your soul any rest? And those are great questions to ask. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit tells us in 1 Corinthians 8.3, you don't have to turn there, but 1 Corinthians 8.3, it says, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And that'd be the short answer. If anyone loves God, he is known by him. So ultimately, there's no scientific process that leads you to the right answer. It's a work of the Spirit of God. 
But if you can't answer any of those questions we just asked, if you have no conviction over sin, if you have no peace, if you have no confidence at all that Christ has paid for your sin, if you can't answer any of those questions, then I would say that you don't know God in this way, and he does not know you in this way. So if you don't have that confidence, what do you do? Wait for it? What do you do if you don't have that confidence that Christ cares for you in this way? What do you do? Seek it. Seek confidence. Seek it in God's word. If you don't have conviction of sin, have you ever thought about seeking it? Have you thought about waiting for it to happen? If you say, oh, that's sin, I just did. it didn't really bother me. Seek conviction. When that thought passes through your head that, wow, that didn't bother me, seek it. Seek conviction. By prayer, by reading the scriptures, by seeking God, seek conviction of sin. This is why the psalmist could say in Psalm 119, he says, my eyes shed streams of water because they do not keep your law. Here's a man who's convicted over his sin, and he wanted to have a vital relationship with the Lord. He didn't want any disturbance in his relationship with the Lord. He wanted to know that God cared for him. Steve, Steve Futori, actually just yesterday, sent me a new hymn, new me, written by Charles Wesley. Um, and he didn't know I was actually thinking about this concept, but it fit great. Listen to what Charles Wesley said. He said, I want a principle within of watchful, godly fear, a sensibility of sin, a pain to feel it near, I want the first approach to feel of pride or wrong desire to catch the wandering of my will and quench the kindling fire. So if you don't have confidence in the finished work of Christ, then seek it. If you don't have these things, seek them through the scriptures. Search, the, search what God has told us in his word, and the Bible can give us absolute certainty about these things because God's word speaks with absolute authority and truth, and we can rely on what it says. That Christ has dealt with our sin once for all, and because of that, we know that we can live under God's goodness. So some things to take away from all this, very practical things. I'd say if you tr as you try to do this, keyword try, we'll see why that's not a great word in a second. But don't do it alone. Don't do it alone. And here's what I mean by that. One way God takes care of us is through his people. One way God takes care of his people is through his other people, watching out for each other's needs. And the negative side of that is don't hang out with the person who's going to be constantly telling you, the people at the church, they don't really love you. They don't really care about you. Don't listen to those people. Don't hang out with them. Don't do it alone. Another thing is don't despise God's providence. Don't despise God's providence. The day of trouble will test your theology. A theology that takes God off the throne when your problems come is not a theology that comes from the Bible. And how many of us have done that? A problem comes, your immediate response is, God, why are you doing this to me? You don't like me anymore. You're no longer good. You're only good when I'm prospering. But quality theology, theology that's from the pages of Scripture, is a theology that says God is still on the throne, especially when your problems come, that in the day of trouble, he is your stronghold. A theology that turns God into an ogre when things get rough is also a lie. God is still good. Or maybe, this will get a lot of us, maybe you hold to a theology of the highest quality. You read the best books, and they are truly quality books, and you read the scriptures, and you know God. You know his character, and you know that he's sovereign. The day of trouble, when it comes, it's going to reveal whether you actually believe it. In other words, when the day of trouble comes, it's going to reveal if you actually have confidence in that God that you study. The day of trouble will test you. And I believe that's what's happening today. Who's heard of Reformed theology? Yeah, you can put your hands up. I am curious. It's a theology that I love because it teaches us the sovereignty of God. It teaches us a high view of who God is. Now, many people are streaming to this thing called Reformed Theology, which from an outside looks great. But many people are doing it just because it is popular, because it's the cool thing to do. And as they do that, are they having confidence in the God of the Bible? Many are not. Many have no idea what they're even signing up for. So when the day comes of their trouble, 
You say, do you really believe that God is sovereign? And all of a sudden, they don't. They really have not embraced the God of the Bible. The day of trouble is going to test the quality of your theology. Another thing is we should not do is not to presume on God's goodness. And how do we presume on God's goodness? We do that whenever we cherish a sin in our heart and hold on to it and say, I'm not letting this go. And I can't let it go. I won't let it go. We presume on his kindness when we think that he'll still show us mercy as long as we're holding on to that sin. We're not, we're not to presume on God's goodness. God's goodness, well, God's kindness, what does it do? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance, leads us to let go of that sin and to embrace him. Now, this is extremely important. The message of the Bible, we've talked about steps, things to do, things to think about, things to consider. The message of the Bible is not first and foremost a message about you stepping forward and doing something. That's not what the message of the Bible ultimately is. Because we're talking about the gospel. Is you stepping forward in effort good news? Is that good news? No, it's not good news. Saying, okay, I'm going to step forward, I'm going to do something. That's not gospel. Why is that not gospel? Because when the Bible talks about the good news, it tells us about something that God has already done. God has, God has taken the initiative. He has stepped forward. He has done something. And we are powerless, as we've seen. And we have no goodness inside of ourselves, as we have seen. We have no way to get to God but through Christ. So we say, God has done something. I'm going to him now by faith. That's all I can do. Go to God by faith in Christ and see him for how glorious he actually is. Because he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He is a good God, full of goodness. And he delights in his people. And he calls all men to repent, everyone in this room, to repent of sin and to turn to Christ, who is the only hope of salvation. So I return to what we said at the very beginning. A life lived under God's goodness is not a life without significant problems, but it is a life of hope. And that's the promise that he gives us here in this text. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for how it teaches us with such clarity, teaches us about ourselves, teaches us who we are apart from Christ. Lord, I do pray that you would give us the grace to draw near to you. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives by faith, not as people who think we can fix it all, not as people who think that we know it all, not as people who think we can protect ourselves, but people who run to you for protection, recognize your goodness, and take great encouragement through that. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged. Those who are hurting and struggling this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would come to them and comfort them. And we do pray that we would worship you this week. I pray that we'd worship you now in song as we sing of Christ and what he's done for us. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.